Hello, and welcome to Outward Slate's LGBTQ podcast. I'm Brian Lauder, an editor at Slate, and this week we've got a little bit of an old-school Slate spoiler special about season four of HBO's True Detective, which this time around is subtitled Night Country and stars Jodie Foster and Kali Race as hard-nosed detectives investigating murder, corporate malfeasance, and mystery in the Alaskan town of Ennis during its period of perpetual night because it's north of the Arctic Circle. So just a little warning to listeners, we are going to be talking about the whole six-episode season, uh, which just wrapped up this past weekend, uh, with a really pretty, let's say, bracing finale might be a good word for it. So if you haven't watched that yet and you plan to, I would save this episode until after you've, you've caught up, and we'll be right back. All right, so why are we going to be talking about this show on the Queer Podcast, you may be asking? Well, that's because as my colleague Madeline Ducharme put it in a recent piece, a thorough investigation has led me to a veritable glacier of evidence that suggests that lesbianism is just as pervasive in the town of Ennis as Cyclops polar bears and mysterious rolling oranges. <laughs> End quote. I am pleased uh, Madeline was able to step over from producing Slate's daily news show, What Next, to unpack that tantalizing sentence for us. Madeline, <laughs> welcome back to Outward. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I hate copaganda, but I do like when the cops are hot dykes beating <laughs> up like bad men who hurt women <laughs> and that is how they get us yeah no, that is how they get us it's totally. really really it's like it's, those... we're really simple creatures i can be pleased pretty easily it's, uh, <laughs> it seems um so just as a quick vibe check uh before we really get into everything how are you feeling after that finale are you feeling shook are you feeling even more sapphic than before <laughs> okay i was I was thinking every part of the finale, every development, until probably the last 12 minutes were so utterly preposterous that I was mm. just sort of, I was having fun. I was like, this is so silly. And I do think that the original season one of True Detective had a similar feeling where everything was so utterly convincing until we got to the finale and everything got kind of John Wickian, like just so <laughs> ridiculous. That's a good word, yeah. yeah. And... Uh, then we got to the last like 12 minutes or so, and I felt like somebody at HBO like preemptively in the past read this piece that I wrote, obviously, after they made this show, and they gave me what I wanted. Um, and so that was... There was some time time as a flat circling happening with your piece yes. and, and the writing. <laughs> Oh my God, that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Madeline, you open your piece, uh, which is titled All the Signs That Point to Lesbianism and True Detective Night Country, with a close reading of the line, we're all in night country now. <laughs> that's the line that I think I need you to share with our listeners and and do that. And then also just remind us sort of who the key players are in your your analysis that are up on your, your lesbian cork board of investigation. Oh my God, my cork board. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well... Night country to me, uh, because of the certain syllables in that word and because night um, leads me to kind of like think about darkness, think mm. about um, cavernous spaces. Yes. And uh, I, I do think the first syllable of the word country does sound like something mm -hmm. that 
lesbians know well. Uh, I, 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 it's just, it's good. It evokes cunning lingus to me. Um, <laughs> yes. I, if we're, and especially if we're all in it now. I think yeah. we're all diving in. That's exactly where I want to be. But this show is um, not making that. <laughs> For the <laughs> record, they are not making this a, a part of their branding at all. But the fact that somebody says we're all in the night country now mm-hmm. and the people who he's saying it to are... One, Jodie Foster, Hollywood's right. like lesbian legend, mm-hmm. who was like pretty much known as queer before, even before she came out. Um, and when she did, it was sort of defiant and kind of like, yeah, I mean, obviously, like she did say she was gay about a thousand years ago back in the Stone Age. And that was <laughs> that was something she said 10 years ago, which I think is mm-hmm. wonderful. And also to... Uh, Callie Reese, who I think is just a kind of lesbian wet dream. Mm-hmm. She is so, so gorgeous and uh, tatted up, so, so brawny, big giant muscles, but has like a very tender and caring face, mm-hmm. even even in spite of the um, sort of menacing dimple piercings, which I don't know if you've ever like held your cheek, but that is a lot of skin to get through. For yeah, piercing. sure. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, who... You can't be a queer person without the, the eyebrow slit. Um, I guess I don't have it, but that's because I'm not cool enough. <laughs> so when you hear a quote like that said to these two people, I, mm. I couldn't help but think, like, hmm, what are they speaking to here? Your piece is sort of framed around, like, excavating this, right? Because you you say sure. that um, the show, you have this great turn of phrase, actually, that the show is queerly heterosexual, uh, <laughs> which I, I love. I love that use of, you know, the sort of more traditional use of queer as, like, strange like what like why is it perplexing perplexing yeah um so what do you mean by that and uh you know you you write actually why on earth this show seems determined to sidestep the queerness that threatens to erupt (laughs) in every intense moment on screen what do you see about that that sort of suppression that's going on well our two main characters are uh despite like every uh, nonverbal signal about mm. them, despite the way that they fill the frame, despite the way they interact with each other, and we can get to that in a second. Um, yeah, they're constantly tracking down men to have like very domineering, intense sex with. Yes, and these are often yes. people they work with, um, used to work with, they might work with in some way, <laughs> and they are. There's a lot of sex in the show, actually, and um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's not hot. I think it's, it's good. <laughs> They're good sex scenes, but they are all with men. And it's, um, it was surprising that the two main characters who for every other signal would point to lesbianism are, um, having these like kind of very, uh, almost like animalistic, like sex, sexual mm. encounters with, um, the men that they are, are in town with. I mean, it seems like the Jodie Foster character has slept with just about everyone's husband. And it's like, it does, right? Yeah, she's like the police chief yeah. who also has enemies with every single woman in town because <laughs> right. she sleeps it's not with a good, yeah. the teacher here who teaches geology. She sleeps with the police chief down in Anchorage. She's like on, she talking about being on Tinder. She's like clearly prowling for um, mm-hmm. people's husbands. <laughs> But you do write in your piece, actually, this is another great line, um, you know, in their dalliances throughout the perpetual night, the men function more like a human dildo for these women uh, who are often on top, which is totally true in terms of just the like blocking of right. the scenes and then like uh, total in total control. So there is, yeah, a, a flipping of maybe what, what would be expected from a normal hetero coupling in that. 
in that regard. I also think that the sex scenes are not really about connection with those men Mm-mm. at all. In fact, mm. they're very much about like blowing off steam. Um, and I do think the men in the show get treated the way that the women of season one get treated, which is that they're sort of there to juxtapose and show how serious our main two detectives are. Everybody else is completely silly, unserious, not taking anything um, to the extent that they need to take it to. They're not working hard enough. And I think that our two main characters, Navarro, played by Callie Reese, and um, uh, Danvers, they need somebody who is not thinking about this as seriously as them to be able to like, <laughs> yeah, to be able to just like blow off steam because nobody is as serious as the true detective. Well, it's like Danvers in particular seems to never sleep or eat <laughs> or like there, right. there's like, like she's truly only ever working or I think these occasional, like you said, sort of uh, steam valve release, <laughs> like sexual encounters, but that's it. Yeah. Right. Because, she, because she's so serious all the time. Yeah, let's back up a little bit and talk about the, the relationship between Navarro and Danvers. Sure. Um, I I loved this uh, sort of close reading you do of the, the can cabinet scene in the kitchen. Before I read your piece and was just watching the show for for pleasure, I noticed this too as a sort of str- a sort of strange little little moment of frisson between them. So can you talk describe that scene? What happens in that scene, and then sort of what you get out of it? Yeah. So the thing about Danvers and Navarro is that they did used to work together. And right. they sort of stumble into working together again because Navarro doesn't actually work for Danvers's um, department. It's and like the it's like the municipal police and the state state trooper. Yeah, exactly. And the show sort of slowly unspools that reasoning, and it's because of a shared case they have, which we can get yeah. to later. But um, when this story, this particular murder, and this particular mystery brings them back together. Um, they have a kind of uh, bitterness going on, but it's mm-hmm. like a familiar bitterness. They they seem to know each other really, really well. And one of the things that happens is um, Danvers is really comfortable just like walking herself into anybody's home. Uh, <laughs> she's particularly her... Without uh, a warrant, just like going, yeah. <laughs> just walking in. And uh, particularly the people who are her subordinates at work, she's very comfortable intruding on their personal lives. And... Um, she sort of busts into Navarro's kitchen, sees that there are groceries on the counter. Navarro has just run out to get, you know, whatever, $20 cans of tuna because they live in the Arctic Circle. Oh, that's right. The prices, the Oreo, it was the Oreos that are like $40. Yeah, yeah exactly. $20, yeah. <laughs> Danvers, like, is so at home that she starts unloading the groceries and joins her. And there's a moment where she's really maybe like a little too mad for (laughs) what the problem was. But that sort of like just shows how serious she is. Mm. Um, And she's like, did you change where you put the cans? And that is such a like telling turn of phrase because it Mm -hmm. means I used to know where the cans were and they're not there right now. And I'm really mad at you that I don't know where the cans are. Um, And it just it seems to suggest because I don't know where Brian's cans are, for example, <laughs> even though we've worked together for now almost, the, you know, four and a half years. The upper left, if you ever need to find them. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you know whose cans I do know where they are? Mm, My yes. girlfriend's. Yes, I, yes. <laughs> just, just putting that out there. Um, I definitely know where her cans are. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing you might know if you woke up in the morning after 
a very, very beautiful night together mm-hmm, and you're looking mm-hmm. to get a caffeine fix. You're digging around right. in the closet or digging around in the cabinet for the coffee and you see, right. hmm, okay, the cans are there. I'm going to keep that in mind. And that's also something you might learn after a few visits, a few mornings <laughs> at Yeah, maybe place. maybe you're even going to make, you know, try to make some pancakes or something and you're like, where's right. that? Right. I need the Bisquick. The Bisquick, right. Where is the Bisquick? No, totally. I mean, I think I think you're reading... That was really a striking moment between them that I think is probably... Probably should be one of the biggest, like, you know, data points on your corkboard. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Because it, yeah, because it's truly, truly odd uh, otherwise. Okay, so going further along, there's a discussion between Denver's and Navarro when they're... I think they're driving somewhere, and they're sort of talking about their, like, past hookups and that kind of thing. And Danvers asked Navarro if she's gone back to girls. Right. So this, I, I believe, is the most uh, explicit uh, reference that we get um, in the show to that, to that moment anyway. So tell us a little bit about that. It's a full HR violation, by the way, to let like, <laughs> yes, well, your subordinate. The show is not a place to look for a model of uh, workplace safety and fairness. But it's kind of a sexy little HR violation. It's a mm. tease. It's like the kind of thing that I feel like... We might say to, you know, a a past lover, a past paramour who has mm. now like um, getting into a little heterosexual nonsense, um, very <laughs> obviously. And you might say like, oh, yeah, well, you still up to that with him. I mean, and he's a very sweet guy. We like Kavik, the guy that um, Navarro yes, we is do. hooking Kavik, up with. Kavik is the sweetest. Oh, my God. Such a sweet yeah. guy. One might even say kind of like a very thoughtful, sweet lesbian, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But um, it's, I mean, it obviously gestures towards the fact that Navarro has had relationships with women, um, mm. sexual, romantic, unclear how serious any of them were, but she definitely has. And actually in the episode that followed um, the publication of this piece, she <laughs> was talking to Navarro about Navarro's sort of like teen stepdaughter who's been acting out and right, she's right. like well she's got this girlfriend is what Danvers says and Navarro's like oh who cares I had I've had dozens I have plenty of those or whatever and I was like mm-hmm, mm. picking mm. it up so mm-hmm. she's definitely into women and um I just think if my boss or former boss was comfortable enough to say something like oh have you gone back to girls now um I don't know. It suggests that maybe that kind of teasing is coming from a place that's not just mm-hmm. HR violation, workplace dynamic. It's coming from a place of like, I can tease you about that because we once had a connection. Like we have some way. kind of history. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Kind of I love yeah. teasing my like exes. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's like it's a fun, silly thing to like poke fun at them and their new um, connections because you, you know, had been there first, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Let's take a quick break here. And then when we come back, I want to talk about the figure of the mommy. We will just take a quick break and we'll be back with Madeline after that. All right, we're back. So like I said, um, later on in your piece, Madeline, you bring up the figure of the mommy in sort of lesbian culture, which is the equivalent for the gays out here of the daddy, which makes sense, right? And you ascribe this in particular in the the context of of this show to Danvers. Talk about that, because I thought that was such a smart reading of of her like vibe in general and just what she's up to. Um, And tell us about the mommy, because I think we all need to learn about it. 
Yeah, I actually think I wrote this paragraph as a refutation of the argument that somebody might make about this dynamic to be like, no, she's really more of like a, a maternal figure. Mm, and actually, mm. the actors themselves have said, um, I think it was Callie Reese who said, like, Danvers is really maternal um, and has like a maternal posture towards Navarro. And I actually think that's part of the sexual dynamic mm, they have. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I think... Um, gay mentorship between two romantic partners is something that is just like completely a part of lesbian and gay culture. And I do think um, I stole the, the idea of the mommy with M-O-M-M-I-E uh, from a great piece that was written in an auto straddle in 2017. Uh-huh. And they were really interested in the mommy as a character who is like um, an actual mother, which Danvers actually is too, but is um, really put together, really beautiful characters like the women in Big Little Lies are kind of mommies. Um, uh, uh-huh, but uh-huh. I actually think the Danvers version of the mommy is much, much sexier. You know, instead of being, <laughs> um, you know, I don't know, wearing like Prada to pick up your kids from school, she's kind of hyper competent. She's prickly. She uh, is. She, she has everybody just in the palm of her hand. Like she's mm-hmm. so powerful in her workplace. You know, one of her younger charges is a new-ish dad. His kid seems to be like two or three. And his wife, they're both very young. They're probably in their early 20s. His wife is trying to go to school and he can just be like, like just a snap. And Danvers can get him to like show up to the office. Totally. Sit and watch corpses like melt Melt in the the ice ring. In the ice (laughs) ring. Oh my God, yeah. You're a dad, but somehow you are more beholden to mommy. That's the mommy, crazy. mommy's calling. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there's also a, there's a little moment. I'm really close reading now, real corkboard feeling, <laughs> but there is a little moment where um, Jodie Foster, who is very small, I think she's about five one, is trying to reach for some coffee that is like on top of a cabinet in the station. And she doesn't even like use words, but she sort of snaps at a, a nameless uh, cop who's sitting just outside. Oh, kitchen. yes, 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 and, yes. And, like, gets him to, like, snaps and kind of points, and he just, like, immediately rises and grabs the coffee and hands <laughs> it to her. Like, she's powerful. And, mm-hmm. I mean, she's got a gun. That's kind of sexy in TV, not in real life. Yeah, but you yeah, know what right. I mean. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I also Symbolically. think... Symbolically. Yeah, I also think the, um, the Fiona Shaw character, who doesn't have a ton to do <sighs> besides be kind of wise <laughs> yeah and, and put out a beautiful christmas spread um she is like a mommy goat to me you know there's a great mm-hmm. scene in fleabag where she has a very small part in season two of fleabag where the main character played by Phoebe waller bridge um is talking about wanting to fuck the priest the hot priest oh yeah and yeah 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 fiona shaw has this like indelible line that i like always think of which is the are you sure you want to fuck a priest or do you want to fuck God? <laughs> and she says it so casually. Fleabag says back, can you, can you fuck God? And she says, oh yes. <laughs> and there's something about her that I've always um, felt drawn to in a way that I was like, oh, this woman knows all. She knows all in Fleabag. She knows all in Night Country. She's, she's mommy, you know? She, she's totally mommy. No, I, I, the only regret really that I had about this series uh, in terms of length, because there's only six episodes, like I mentioned at the top, I felt like there should have been like another, just maybe one more episode that was sort of a capsule episode about her character. Yes, because I love, 
I what love What's she her. doing there? What's she doing? <laughs> she's being kind of like a witch or something like up in the like Yeah, she seems to kind of rise above the Ennis bullshit that is happening that everybody else is so steeped in and that in and of itself is kind of appealing and alluring and she has a dynamic with Navarro that like is kind of never explained I was sort mm-hmm. of perplexed by it mm-hmm. but um it made me envious I was like I want a Fiona Shaw that I can go shack up with on Christmas Eve because I'm alone and devastated and she's gonna have like crudite and, and tea and tea and, yeah. and brandy and like wearing this sexy velvet dress it's like <laughs> she wasn't expecting you why is she so glamorous because just she's, for herself because she's mommy and mommy gets to have all of that exactly all the time. <laughs> so let's see one of one thing that you pick up on in your piece which i think is important to mention before we end is that there's also just sort of due to the indigenous setting of this of the show in alaska there's a matriarchal kind of culture that's like shown to us too especially i'd actually say in the in the final episode do you just want to talk a little bit about about that aspect of the show and how how this sort of you know fits fits within what you're arguing yeah absolutely i think that there is a really beautiful scene um i actually think it's like one of the best scenes of the whole show even though it's a little bit more incidental to the actual mystery um and i actually wish the show was longer so we could get more scenes like this they're just they're giving you texture of all these characters um, including one of our season's murder victims um and it's navarro shows up to arrest one of the season's murder victims back when she was alive um and she's like really dead set on arresting her for protesting at the mine and mm-hmm. there's like pollution you know. issues happening yeah yeah and it's a very righteous thing that the character did um and where she finds her is this birth center where a woman an Inupiaq woman woman is going to give birth and um Navarro's kind of stunned by it and and it's only women there there's no other like father and figure involved it's really just like probably half a dozen women who are all really supporting and taking care of each other and um bringing into the world like a whole new person and i think there's this 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 bond that you can feel among the women of that community which is an important bond to like set the standard for because of the finale i mean like we said the finale was getting pretty preposterous they kill the character that seems to have the only information right uh it's like what is going on um and there's still you know 25 minutes left and it's like okay well somebody's gonna explain to me what happened here um and through a series of also ridiculous um Ex, you know, explanations and things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They find a, a definitive fingerprint that seems to lead them to back to the women who were the like cleaners. Yeah, of yeah. The, the local yeah mm-hmm. research station, and then we get a sort of awesome, I guess, kind of John Wickian. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> like sequence where one of the women is telling a story, quote unquote, even though I'm she's revealing the truth, obviously. Um, and in which these women have banded together to avenge their, um, the murder of their yeah friend. Yeah, yeah. The murder of their friend. Exactly. And they do so in ways that are like deeply emasculating. They kind of force yeah. them into corners. They hold guns to them and force them to undress and they give their friend, their murdered sister, the opportunity to 
killed them sort of through a metaphysical ghost kind of thing yeah they're like either either she'll take if she wants them she'll take them and if she doesn't their clothes are here they can come back (laughs) and we'll see what it's great i mean yeah it's super great and and that whole sequence is shot in such a way that is like you kind of relish it um and it's and it was the only moment where i was like oh this rocks actually this this finale is amazing (laughs) everything else was a little bit messy and un you know un I don't know. I couldn't wrap my head around most of it, but this sequence was delicious. It was delicious, and it, and it, yeah, and again, it was it was this you know very powerful moment of the the local indigenous community like sort of exercising power right against yeah. against the the settler um, colonial folks that represented by the the scientists. So we do have an ending that I like a, the actual very end of of the series that I think probably goes on the corkboard. And we can we can sort of end, end our discussion there. But I'm curious. So we have, um, you know, it seems like it, it does get a little hard to follow what's really happening and what's not. But it seems like uh, at the very end, um, Navarro has sort of disappeared. She had, you know, for a long time, she'd said she felt called to kind of wander out into the ice and, you know, whatever that meant, like kind of, I, I don't know exactly um, join like join like, like the spirit, spirit w- the world. spirit yeah. world. Yeah, that's kind of what she seems. She was sensitive to, to spirits, and then, but we're not sure. But so there's a there's a moment where Danvers rather is going around and looking for her, and she's gone. Doesn't show she's there, and then we get this final scene where Danvers is at like her beach house. I don't know where, where that yeah, house it's is kind exactly. Of a lakeside cabin. Yeah, and it's summertime, and it looks really beautiful. Like you have a mm-hmm. um, back patio. Where you can like sip coffee and and look out on the water. And she brings out her coffee and sits sits on a couch. And then suddenly Navarro is there, standing on the deck, also materializes and walks towards her. <laughs> yes. And so I'm curious uh, if you think that that means you know that they're are they together? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> or or is this is it the spirit of Navarro sort of just visiting Danvers and maybe Danvers doesn't even see her because they are kind of blocked like somewhat far apart. I don't know. Right. But Danvers does say it's Ennis. No one ever really leaves. She does say that. Yes. Yes. And it's very like American Horror Story, like murder house. Like no one can, <laughs> no one gets away. <laughs> I know. She said it like it was like a warm thing to say, but it was actually kind of, <laughs> kind of distressing. Um, but I think because she's saying, you know, uh, she never, she, they never really leave and no one really knows what happened to her, even though it seems to suggest, I mean, it's clearly one of those things where it's like, well, it could be either. Which yeah, I, yeah. Eh, I, I can take or leave those. But the fun thing about that is... Okay, well then they're obviously married and living together, and they're gonna stay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're gonna be there forever in their beautiful little lakeside cabin. <laughs> um, even though I think the show would rather it be that she's a ghost, like looking after her in the from the afterlife, which I also um, think is kind of gay. But <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is super gay. Yes, because <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's funny because it suggests that they had like um, that they really liked each other. Because mm. if you're if you're gonna be in the afterlife and you're going to look after somebody, it would be somebody you love, right? Sure. But I don't even think these two women like each other very much. They just have a lot of tension and they definitely, <laughs> like, had some kind of very personal connection. Um, so the thought that, like, the ghost the, the ghost herself would stick around to, um, <laughs> to like, watch over. Yeah. Was, it, it didn't, it, it, the, 
it wasn't quite the right chord to strike, but maybe now that they've solved the case, they can just be together. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I think I think the official outward position will be that they are uh, married. It could be on this physical plane, could be on the spiritual plane, but they are together forever. I like that idea. I think, <laughs> totally. I think they need a break, and <laughs> that looks like a good place to have it. Exactly. I think everything is adding up on the corkboard to say... The show is very lesbian. I'm very curious to hear if our listeners agree. Please reach out, as always, to outwardpodcast.com to let us know what you thought about True Detective. We thought it was pretty fun um, and and very, very gay. Speaking of gay, uh, Madeline, I think you may have brought us a gay agenda item uh, to share before you, before you leave. Please do. Okay, so an update to the gay agenda that I have is there's an excellent documentary, and it is unfortunately on Tubi, or maybe fortunately, because that means you can get it for free. But I do think you put something on Tubi and it becomes, it has the veneer of like, oh, that's a Tubi movie. And like, <laughs> it, like it's, it means it's garbage and it's thrown together in uh, 15 seconds or whatever. But it's a documentary that's called um, Shattered Glass. And it was created by the uh, Women's National Basketball Association's Players Association. So that is their union. Um, and this is crossing, that happens to cross over in a lot of my interests. I <laughs> got very into the WNBA and I actually wrote a piece about getting very into the WNBA. You did, um, yes. You can find that on Slate.com. And uh, I also am a part of our union here at Slate. I am very interested in labor politics. And the show, the, the documentary follows three women in the WNBA, two of whom are queer. And um, it follows them very closely about the sort of priorities that they have for their next contract and um, what they want for themselves, for their partners, for their families. And I think these two women that are queer that they that the show or that the, um, the documentary follows are just fascinating, mm. dynamic, mm-hmm. beautiful Um amazing people they're amazing athletes but they're also just i felt so close to them watching this documentary and thinking about their union fight and thinking about um, the things that they they want to work for you know something as like unsexy as a pension there's a a moment where the sort of reigning mvp her name is um brianna stewart she has two children and her her wife was actually pregnant at the time of the finals and like had the baby like just a few days after her team was in the finals. And it's like, you can feel the sort of excitement. Um, They have two children and she's like, I can't believe we don't have a pension. We need a pension. And there's this urgency um, to it. And there's something so powerful about hearing this like athlete, this woman, this mother, this like lesbian advocating for something that they deserved long, long before Totally, yeah, yeah. And so I loved it. I just think everybody should watch it. I think it's a really interesting insight into labor politics. People don't think about athletes as workers, but they are. But they they are. Absolutely should. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there's also just like a lot of really sweet gay moments between, yeah, Brianna Stewart, her wife, her two kids, and um, John Quell Jones, who is also the other queer woman featured, and her fiance. They have very sweet moments. And it's worth it just to watch it for that. Oh, that sounds like it's just called Shattered Glass on Tubi. Everyone go check that out. Yes, pensions are not sexy until you start drawing on them, and then I think they become very sexy. That's the sexiest <laughs> thing. Put it in your Tinder bio. Yeah. I'm 6'5", and I have a pension from Slate. <laughs> That's it. 
Um, all right, Madeline, thank you so much again for coming. Th first, thank you for writing this wonderful piece because I think you really did the, the important detective work on this season of True Detective. Uh, but also thank you for coming on the show. If you want to check out that piece again, it is called All the Signs That Point to Lesbianism in True Detective Night Country by Madeline Ducharme. Madeline, as always, thanks for coming on Outward. We love having you. Thanks so much, Brian. This was really fun. All right, that is it for our show for this week. Please send us feedback and topic ideas as always at outwardpodcast.slate.com or you can hit us up on Facebook or X at Slate Outward. Just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you can get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Working, and you will never ever hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more about that, go to slate.com slash outwardplus. Our show is produced by Palace Shaw. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends, family, lovers, everybody about it. Rate and review the show so that others can find it. We always appreciate that. And until next time, everybody, stay gay.